human decency is not derived from religion, it precedes it. The religion of one age is the literary entertainment of the next. The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Exceptional claims demand exceptional evidence. Welcome to the podcast of Leaders in Free Thought. This is where Seth and I get together and discuss issues of importance to atheists, skeptics, free thinkers, and others who base their lives around reason. We bring you news, interviews, and thoughtful discussion on topics of importance to people in the free thought community. I'm Seth. And I'm Jeff, and you're listening to the Leaders in Free Thought. Seth and I got a chance to attend uh, Nancy Barron's lecture, The Risks and Rewards of Science Communication, an interview, among others, her, uh, a local radio host at a science program, and a few of the students who were in attendance. You want to start off with some bullshit? (laughs) We could. We could totally start off with some bullshit. I want to tell you about my day. Let's hear about your day. I got T-boned this morning by some 18-year-old chick. Seriously? Is that why you don't have your truck? Yeah, that's why I don't have my truck. It's been such a pain in the ass. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Uh, So I remember I'm like a junior in high school, and uh, I'm teaching a friend how to drive stick in my uh, my Jeep with the big roll bars and the big uh, push bars on the front. We're driving around in the parking lot, completely empty parking lot, like miles around. You can see the curvature of the earth before you can see another car. And we're driving, and somehow this girl comes along in this like little Civic-looking thing and just slams into the front of my car. We peel her little tiny car off. Mine is fine because we've got these giant push bars. I get out of the car. It's the girl that we've all been fantasizing about since we were 11 years old, right? It's that just absolutely gorgeous girl, and she's in complete and total tears, just sobbing. And I have no way of talking to her. There's like inconsolable. I'm I'm speechless for the first time in my entire fucking life because I'm like, wow, this is the first interaction I'm going to have with her, and it's going to be her sobbing and me apologizing for her colliding with me. That reminds me of one time when I was speaking of collisions. Uh, I, <laughs> reminds me one time I just got my license and I was like I've mentioned probably a hundred times on this podcast I used to live in Texas a very rural area of Texas Texas and uh, Texas you say <laughs> so we, we lived out in kind of like the boondocks and one time I was driving home from school I in the distance I see a deer and he's just like galloping along and I'm like oh, deer huh how about that and I just keep going keep driving down the road and the deer is like he's galloping and he's getting closer and closer and closer and then i'm driving down the road and then it suddenly it clicks i'm like if this deer doesn't stop or change direction (laughs) he's going to hit me and then at about that point when i realized that the deer (laughs) just slammed into the broadside of my ram charger that i had back then (laughs) and it was just so bizarre because it was just like it's like he wanted to commit suicide or something he just like (laughs) slammed his fucking head he was he was at a full goddamn gallop and and you know i'm i'm going i don't know like 35 40 or something and he's just like (laughs) bam right into like the passenger side door and then i i stop and i pull over and i get out and his neck is twisted like a corkscrew oh yeah if you ever hit a deer going even slightly fast i had a friend hit a deer not that unrecently ago, like two years ago, 
just blasted blood across the front of the car. It looks like you hit like a hobo who is cruising down the street, like you've committed manslaughter with your car. Yeah, it's not a it's not a good look for that. Oh, I love the I, yeah, the the deer around here too are, are it's just fucking insane because you go up and there's just elk and deer fucking everywhere and we keep moving further and further into these places and we keep getting more and more exotic animals and then we're just eventually going to be hitting fucking polar bears and shit but just the other night we almost hit a fucking elk riding around up uh oh god you know where risk canyon is we, we almost crashed into this goddamn elk it pulls off the side of the road just runs it and an elk wouldn't have been insignificant you hit a deer it's like oh shit the front end of my car is broken up yeah. An elk would fuck your shit up. That'd be like hitting a small Toyota. Yeah, there would, yeah. Eighteen year old girl. She cute? You got the number now. <laughs> oh yeah. She was I guess she was kinda cute. Um, <laughs> she was definitely wealthy. Really? Uh, yeah, it's I went over to this body shop and she ended up uh, I went over to her like her favorite body shop or something to get it done because <laughs> he would do it cheaper. And then she had to give me a ride home. Because uh, it was in Loveland, and so she like stopped by her house first. And her house is like one of the most gorgeous houses I've ever seen with my own two eyes. <laughs> uh, and it was just ridiculous. It was just this. Oh, it had to be multi, multi million dollars. It was on this. It was on several acres of just like pristine, gorgeous <laughs> land on like the outskirts of Loveland. You know, and it's it's just like immaculately landscaped. It had this enormous like log cabin looking house uh and then like a ranch just just uh with like a whole bunch of horses and such wait so hold on hold on because i'm gonna have to reassess my my entire world view you got collided with by an 18 year old rich girl i won't believe it an unsafe driving 18 year old rich girl the, the room is spinning <laughs> how, how am i ever gonna fit this into my my perception of reality i don't know what to do with this it was strange because when i got to the I mean, I guess it wasn't strange. <laughs> the the body repair guy was like, "Yeah, her and her sister like put my kids through college when they were in high school." Oh my God, uh, it was like I had basically ninety percent of my business came from their accidents. And I was like, "Oh, my just, that's that's one of those totally because as long as you got the money to keep paying the insurance bills, you can keep fucking hitting people with your goddamn car." I guess. So, anything going on with you this week? <laughs> absolutely Anything interesting i'm continually looking for work and uh that's not working i'm getting paid menially to uh install a friend's sink or uh so that'll be fun it'll be a nice step backwards for me back into the the random odds and ends construction field that i'm all excited about what happened to center partners uh, you know, I applied for them, and uh, I, I still haven't heard back, which means that, that I am <laughs> not qualified. <laughs> I am not qualified to take incoming phone calls from my rate customers. Because yeah. <laughs> they've got one of those great tests you take where you go. It's like strongly agree. Exactly, agree, exactly. Neutral, On a whatever. weekend, your friends are all going to a party, but you feel like watching a movie at home. I'm more likely to do what my friends say or more likely to stick with what I want. <laughs> oh, God, I hate those things. <laughs> they're awesome. And if you can tell what they're trying to to divine from you, you're a better man than I. <laughs> for all I know, those things test for sociopathy, and that's how they caught yeah. the Green River Killer or something like that. It's, it's so <clears> ridiculous. <throat> I actually recently took one of those because I've been applying like crazy in mm -hmm. Seattle, and I've been getting no bites, and I was like, well... You know what? Home Depot didn't suck too bad. Yeah, I'll go back. I, you know, I'm, I'm not above it. 
<laughs> and so I took, you know, went online and I took their, you know, 45 minute personality test. And it's just like, it's the same, like two or three questions basically. And it's just worded slightly differently. Every exactly. Time, you know, and it's like, I've answered this question 10 times before. Like, yeah. Fuck off. Well, you're going through these things, and I, I have no qualifications, so I'm going horrible places. I haven't actually done Walmart, but you look at a place like that, and I'm going to fail the psych test. What is it that the woman with the growth on her face, the 300-pound lady with the NASCAR shirt, and the uh, the 15-year-old kid in the tap-out gear, what is it that they know that I don't? What what kind of intellect the do they tats. have? <laughs> exactly, exactly the fake gang tattoos that he put on in study hall detention. We're in a very, very white state. Yeah. <laughs> state technically if you have gang tattoos you probably did them in in school suspension i had a friend that used to like tattoo himself i don't know how he did it. he just like it's like a needle and a pin and yeah. some sort of electrical device wow. and he would just like like uh actually the uh the the intro and outro music is a band i used to be in and when i was in that band excellent band uh thank you <laughs> <laughs> when i was in that band there was this guy that we called drunk john and uh he would just he would just come over and get wasted drunk and just tattoo himself <laughs> like on his legs or on his arms with his little uh-huh. shitty like homemade uh little tattoo device. It was well, it do was that. Yeah, you watch those prison shows and they've got that thing. It's like a big pen with a fucking pager <laughs> vibrator on it. With, oh man. So let's talk about science communication. Right. So Shall we we got a chance to talk to Nancy Barron, who was putting on a seminar called The Risks and Rewards of Science at Communication over at CSU. And uh, along with her, we got to talk to a local radio DJ, a radio science, a science radio show DJ. She's yeah, still a like DJ a, if she's not spinning records. Is that the situation? She's a DJ. She does some sort of, excuse me. She does some sort of community radio, apparently, that I haven't heard, but apparently it reaches out here. Yeah. But it's kind of obscure yeah a local mountain yeah, town science it? communication show that is obscure yeah. <laughs> it's like obscure on our level and uh we got a chance to talk to a few students who attended the whole thing too so we uh all in all we got a few great interviews of this thing kgnu she hosts the how on earth science show k new k k new <laughs> the new atheist no that has nothing to do with atheism but no yeah Although I've said many a time that I think science education leads to atheism. It's the same way that counting leads to math. Yeah. That you start out with this kind of education and then all of a sudden you have to think logically about things, which tends to create problems if you don't have an atheist mindset. So up first is students. It's an interview with uh, Colin Quinn Quinn. and Carrie Sherwin. Colin Quinn, not as funny as he was on Tough Crowd. (laughs) Much younger looking, though. Uh, The drinking has not done him harm. Anyways, we got a chance to talk to them. Uh, Colin does research in selenium. That's the thing about science is that like there's a lot of there's a lot of stuff. I mean, it's not all warp drives, you know. <laughs> it's not all uh, time travel or right. whatever. It's not all like really fancy, awesome, you know, dick hardening stuff. You know, some of it's a little <laughs> boring. Some of it's a little white bread it's like something that has to be done well they always tell those there's always those great stories about uh something super fucking boring going on and then someone finds something out and all of a sudden we have jetpacks you know right you got uh what is it marie curie the guy what was it he had the radium sitting in the drawer 
and it exposed the film. Isn't that the story? He had like photo paper in the drawer and the radium exposed it somehow. Is that right? Package. That's what I've heard. That. And then what's great about that is this guy who's uh, supposedly a smart dude, her professor. Someone can get me the name at some point in time. But her professor thought it was boring and stupid. And so he farmed it out to one of his female <laughs> students because he's like, oh, this is idiotic. I can't even give this to one of the guys. And uh, followed it up with uh, two Nobel Prizes and then... Uh, and then the atomic bomb, right? <laughs> so maybe we'll find out selenium is the key to a warp drive. Maybe yeah. it's maybe time travel. Someday they'll be talking about the selenium components in a, in our time travel devices. And Viagra started out as just another blood pressure medication. Damn straight. So you Send never to know find that stuff. Hey, I I take uh, I take Propecia, and that just started out as prostate medication. And <laughs> <laughs> they realized guys were getting hairy nut sacks and hairy hairy taints. <laughs> So here's our little discussion about their research. Hi, my name is Colin Quinn. I'm a postdoc here at CSU in the biology department, and I have never really interacted with journalism or journalists, and uh, I wanted to take this opportunity to learn how to do that as a scientist. Awesome. What's your postdoc in? I study plant ecology in the biology department. Very Specifically, cool. I look at selenium in plants. Yeah. <laughs> awesome, awesome. Don't understand that at all, but I'm hoping all I right. will by the end. Let's go ahead. Um, my name is Carrie Sherwin, and I'm a PhD student here, and I wanted to um, gain better skills at communicating through, um, I guess, me- the media for the general public. I like that both you guys are getting a trial by fire in the first. You just had the workshops. So now you get to deal with us. So what was your guys' takeaway? Like, what was the biggest things you guys – What give us your impressions of what you thought. I thought it was – really valuable it was um really interesting and fun it was really exciting and it gave us practice i guess talking with um, real journalists we on the other hand are not real journalists so we're gonna ask sloppy questions and give you guys just a hard time the entire time good good so okay so let's try out your skills tell us a little about what your research is in yeah well i study selenium in plants lots of people don't even know what selenium is um selenium is an element and it's an essential element what that means is that people need selenium to survive they don't have selenium they'll eventually die and selenium is an interesting element because it is found out here in the western united states and it's naturally occurring and it occurs at very high levels and that can be a problem the reason that can be a problem is because livestock and wheat plants with the selenium in it and they'll suffer toxicity and they can eventually die and this selenium also through agricultural practices and through mining practices can get into our waterways and it can cause human uh, health problems. All right. So one of those things, a little bit is great, too much is just like everything else. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so any upcoming projects that you're working on or anything, anything yeah, specific that, we should look question. out for? Actually, we're writing a grant right now for the USDA, and we're interested in how selenium affects bee health. Uh, bee health is very important right now because we're seeing colony collapse disorder. And right. We're not, we don't think selenium has anything to do with colony collapse disorder, but we are curious to see how selenium in plants affects bee health. Mm-hmm. And if it, it could positively affect their health if, it, if it's a small amount of selenium, or it could negatively affect their health if it's a large amount of selenium, or it could right. have no effect. So hopefully we'll find out. <laughs> so yeah, that's what you're looking for, right? Yeah. <laughs> what about you? What's your research right now in? Well, I'm looking at the effects of climate change on shortgrass prairie. I'll bet you in your line of research, half your time goes to explaining that climate change is actually real, right? I know I've had that conversation a lot just in the last month or so. Definitely. Definitely. And uh, that's a a challenge because I'm not a climate scientist. But, I mean, there's obviously a lot of 
evidence through the climatic events that are happening and that are projected to happen, but also through some of the impacts that are happening on the land or in different communities in our environment. So what, what upcoming projects are you guys specifically working on? One of the current projects is we're looking at whether or not drought will create a window of opportunity for invasive plants to come in and, and take over a grassland because of different disturbances that that were created by the drought. Well, and something we've noticed, or at least I've noticed for sure, is like a weariness to deal with us from certain certain scientists, certain groups, just in the sense of what are they going to do with this? Are they going to come in and be like, so what is the evidence for climate change? Why are you lying to the public? Did ClimateGate really prove that you guys are all liars? <laughs> I think scientists are inherently um, afraid of talking to the media because they're afraid of how they're their data or their particular field of study will be interpreted by the masses. And sometimes it's hard for us as scientists to talk to the media because we don't know how to explain it as well to the media because we're trained to explain it to our peers. Right, right. Because I could go out right now and say that selenium is the new wonder drug. From what I hear, it keeps bees alive. And so we should all be taking insane amounts of it every day. Yeah. That's ex- that's ex- exactly the wrong interpretation. Right, but. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, because all that that is scrutinized so much with people that are not scientists. And so right, right. Well, we're science enthusiasts. He's a working scientist, but I I am, am more the Artie Lang of the show in the sense that I don't understand what's going on or who you people are. <laughs> but no, that's awesome. So, best takeaway from the from the workshop today. Don't be afraid to talk about your science to the public. Awesome. Definitely trying that right now. So my biggest takeaway is that from the workshop today was that it is possible to convey our scientific uh, knowledge to a wide array of people if we prepare it right and if we structure things right. And and um, I guess that's all. Okay. Cool. So what? Open mic. What is your What is your one thing you would want us to know about your guys's projects, about science communication, about whatever? You could tell us that you're still in love with Jenny from the seventh grade, and she needs to call you for all I can. Is Jenny out there? No. <laughs> That's actually from my life now. <laughs> uh, no, my biggest takeaway from the workshop today was that, as scientists, we should communicate our our ideas to the public, and hopefully, in a way that the public can use to for benefit. Awesome, awesome. Open mic. What would you say? I agree with with Colin that we should be communicating our science, but also that I I guess an important point is that people need to believe in climate change, that it's happening, and that it's also really having serious impacts on on our environment. Okay, so quick question. You just popped into this, and I kind of want to know, one of the big arguments I've heard, not against climate change, but against, against actually curtailing CO2 levels, is... How do we know it's not a good thing? Maybe the world being a little bit warmer would be a great way to live. Since you're actually dealing with the impacts of that, tell us why that's wrong. Open Canada. Exactly. We'll have iguanas in Canada. It'll be awesome. You know, I think a lot of people have have that opinion, actually. I, I have heard that. 
that some people think that, yeah, a warmer world, how could that be bad? But um, you have to think about, there are some areas of the world that are already really warm, and so increasing their temperatures would be um, harmful. But also, mostly, we need to think about the the ocean and, and the, the rising sea levels and, and how that, that will affect weather events. Well, I noticed you were using the terminology of like climate shifts and climate changes rather than global warming, which I really like. It's the, it's the rebranding effort of like, no, this is the way to think about it. Yes, sometimes it'll make things colder places. That's how. Yeah. That's had a little trouble booking scientists over you know other types of guests we are wondering what your thoughts were on that being someone whose whose focus is science communication i think scientists are very used to talking to each other and less used to talking to the wider world right that's often a very scary proposition for them (laughs) so it pushes the the needle of their comfort zone out of the green into the orange and maybe even the red. Yeah. We've had a few people think that we were setting up a hit. <laughs> we were like getting it so that we could really attack them on something, which I suppose is, is a lot of the way the world works right now, going after scientists, you know, let's get our best clip we possibly can. I was going to leave this kind of question to later, but since we're on the topic, one of the reasons I wanted to start this podcast is that I was really inspired by a lot of... Um, intellectual and science-based podcasts like uh, I don't know if you're familiar with Radio Lab or Science Talk or to the best of our knowledge and uh, these types of things and I thought to myself I, I could do something like that um, and I bet there's a lot of really cool research going on um, here at CSU like right under my nose that's that's not being publicized and, and I would like to talk to my professors and get that out there um, so I remember about a year ago I was working with what I consider a brilliant, brilliant research scientist doing uh, work on plant evolutionary genetics. And, and I told him that I wanted to start a science podcast and if he would be my first guest. And, and he said no because he really hates doing stuff like that. And then in January, I recently started working for a nutritional biochemist um, who is a great, great public speaker. And he loves talking to reporters and journalists. And there's a lot of uh, like articles in the Denver Post that, that cite him. But to be honest, I'm not really sure if he's a really good scientist. And um, I know you're not like a psychologist or anything, but <laughs> <laughs> in your experience, like, do great scientific minds have difficulty in communicating their work, or, or can you be like really skilled in, in both areas? I'll tell you a little secret that I've learned, is that the best communicators are actually those who do the most preparation. And then it appears like it's effortless. So a lot of the people who are viewed as, you know, the talented, gifted, silver spoon in their mouth type public speakers actually simply are the most disciplined. 
And very often that discipline translates both into your ability to do science, but also your ability to do the hard work and preparation to be an effective communicator. And so there is this intrinsic link between being a scientific leader and being an effective communicator. And those who've risen to the top know this. Could you give us a little background on yourself and, and what it is that you do? I'm a personal coach for scientists. I started off as a, a biologist working in national parks, which is why I really have enjoyed being here at CSU because so oh many yeah. of these people are my people. <laughs> there are you know, folks who are working as scientists, a lot of them in Rocky Mountain National Park. A lovely place. Lovely place. <laughs> and, and, you know, they love the natural world. A lot of them are researching what they love. Uh, over time, I became more and more interested in not just talking amongst ourselves, not even talking just to uh, park visitors, but thinking, God, the wider world needs to, to know more about the things that scientists are witnessing. Because that's how I think of scientists, as witnesses to nature and what's going on. So my background really has just been this constant um, desire, first of all myself, to speak to broader audiences, and then realizing that as just one person, I could have an even bigger effect if I helped other scientists bridge that gap. So I went from a scientist to a journalist, and now as almost like a personal trainer. You wrote a book called Escape from the Ivory Tower, and Donald Kennedy writes a, writes a forward to that book, and in it he says that he would give this scenario to his PhD students. Imagine that you are waiting for an elevator with a friend on the ground floor of a nice hotel. Your friend is intelligent, curious, and well-educated, but definitely not a scientist. You will have the duration of the nonstop ride to the 15th floor to explain what it is you did, what it means, and why it's important. Do you think this is an important scenario to give to um, like students or scientists? I think the problem that scientists and students have is the curse of too much knowledge. They know too much, and so they don't know what's most important. I often use this little metaphor of, it's like if I was to walk in the room and I had a tray I was holding, and the tray is just heaped with every kind of object imaginable, what would they remember when I left the room? Well, everyone would remember something different. But if I came back in the room and I just had three things, on my tray, they'd all remember the same three things. And that's what they need to think about doing, picking the three things that are most important. And that's what you use in your elevator speech. So it's, it's however you want to force it, whether it's what's on your tray or the shortness of the time, what's most important and how do you cut to the chase and answer the question to whoever you're talking to, so what, why should I care? Yeah, I had a question as long as we're talking about like the disconnect of, of passing information on is one of the things um, that I find, and like I said, science enthusiast, not scientist, is when I'm trying to explain something or trying to say, hey, you should really read this book, it's the coolest thing ever, is a basis of, well, I kind of stopped thinking about science in the ninth grade. I'm not, it's not, you would have to build a building before they got to the point where they were going to want to read a, a Richard Dawkins book or something along those lines. Do you think? I mean, do you think science education plays into the inability to pass along science information in our in our society? Or, you know, E.O. Wilson says every child has a bug stage. Mm -hmm. I just never grow out of mine, and I think that that it's true 
that in some schools, it's almost as if the love of science is educated out of you. Right. Mm-hmm. So the, the thing that really I've seen over the years that makes a big difference to people's lives is, first of all, direct connection and experience. What I care about is the natural world. So I'm talking about environmental scientists. They almost all had some sort of connection in their earlier life, and they had a mentor, a really good teacher, whether it was in elementary school or maybe in their early undergraduate years. But I think those are the critical ingredients. And right. I do think that, that it is really important that good teachers are rewarded. <laughs> and I'm excited to see some of the changes that are, are underway now to try to enable that rather than just, you know, thinking about things like seniority. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Which can be a real deadener. The Peter Principle. I've been here the longest without moving up, so I should be in charge. <laughs> I saw your talk yesterday, and in, in the beginning, you, you mentioned a, um, the marine ecologist Jane Lubchenco, and she called for a new social contract for science some years ago. What is the social contract for science, and why is it important? What she was talking about was that scientists shouldn't just keep it to themselves. They shouldn't, you know, scientists get in it for the loving of the game. Mm -hmm. They get into it because they're just really fascinated. But the problem is this big disconnect. It's this idea that, you know, society is not benefiting from that knowledge. And she says, I think it's absolutely essential that our science is used and useful. And so she called, it was really a call to arms to scientists to bring your science to the table. Start informing decision makers. Talk to your community. Engage with your schools so that everybody else learns from your your experiences, your knowledge, and ultimately what comes down to wisdom so that we we can build a better society and solve the problems that we're facing today, which are significant. (laughs) To use an understated scientific term. (laughs) (laughs) Something I've noticed with, with, um, especially things like evolution is one of the big ones. There's a lot of push to get get non-evolution-based materials into textbooks, into schools and things like that. And one question I have is, is, or what I should say is that, is that, we seem to win in court battles. There seems to be, what happens is there seems to be a, a grassroots movement to get, let's get nonsense into a textbook. Freedom and of speech. What happens, yeah, exactly. And what happens then in the courtroom is that science wins out. Why do you think it's so much easier to win in a courtroom than the court of public opinions type thing? Why do you think that's such a difficult thing to accomplish a lot of the time? Well, you know, scientists are partially to blame because historically they haven't been very good communicators. <laughs> And they lose in the court of public opinion. You know, on the one hand, there's often big money um, and a lot of professionalism in those who have an agenda that Mm. they want to advance. Whereas those scientists are just poor, stumbling seekers of the truth insofar as, uh, you know, they're skeptics. And so they're always, you know, I think that this is a very value-laden statement, but... The whole idea of science is that, it's, is that it's only true insofar as it hasn't been falsified yet. And so by always being mindful of that, scientists undermine their clarity. The bottom line is that 
the public now perceives science as simply another opinion. A postmodernist kind of effect. They don't understand what science is mm -hmm. and that science is evidence-based. And it's really important for scientists to distinguish between science and opinion. And mm -hmm. that gets lost in the debate. I'm really poor at going off the cuff, but I'm going to try it um, <laughs> right now. That, that brings to mind a little, a little bit of something I, s I see on um, like new news organizations, like, say, uh, uh, CNN. There'll be a topic, a scientific topic, and then they'll bring in someone who's like for evolution, and then they'll have an expert who's against evolution. And is, is it valuable to have, like, even if maybe the scientific consensus is like, 98% in favor of something. Is right. it is it productive? Is it, it is it good to have a, a for and against as if as if it was kind of like a We 50, get equal time thing. to talk even though the the opinions right. might not be equally valid. Exactly. I I think that what's more constructive is to find the common ground where we can agree. Like what are the problems that we have to solve? And to look at it that way. I mean rather than talking about climate change, you know, uh, truth or menace you know, <laughs> are, what are the solutions for the economy? What are the solutions for energy? What are what what is the future? And if we can become more solution oriented, rather than just debating, I I think that that's the way ahead. And so I think that that scientists have to get better at reframing the debate, rather than obediently answering questions that you'll never win. I I I think there's a a quote that I often think about, which is, you cannot wake a man who's pretending to sleep. Hmm. And that's what you're dealing with in, in the debate, in some cases. So therefore, um, let's debate the terms that, in a way that'll move us ahead, which is towards solving the problems that bedevil us today. what she had to say jeff nancy nancy was interesting uh because while i didn't find every moment enthralling with her <laughs> i feel like no i feel like she's a great um i feel like she's a great upper instructor for thinking through what you're saying she was great about that she took a few seconds and thought about each one of our questions she was very careful in how she worded herself she was great to talk in sound bites uh, she did a very good job of communicating what I felt was almost no content. So imagine how good she would have been with some serious content, right? Yeah, right, yeah. right, if she was talking for the Manhattan Project. But I feel like she was probably very effective in her speaking a lot of the- She was communicating about communicating. Which is which is very hard. I'm not yeah. a fan of the meta stuff. It's, uh, <laughs> it's, I'm not a huge Lost fan. Anyways, um, no, and that's not to say she wasn't a fun interview and I didn't learn something, we didn't pick something up. It was a lot of fun to do. But I felt like that was a real strength. And uh, it's something she and people like her should very much be listened to. Because that's one of the things in science that's really bad right now. You turn on television on a Sunday, and there are religion communicators fucking everywhere. Nonsense communicators. And they're great at it. They are people who can change a mind. Meanwhile, Carl Sagan's been dead for a while, <laughs> yeah. and we have yet to replace him. And he was only one dude, right? Yeah, I don't know. Neil deGrasse Tyson's doing a pretty good job. But. Neil deGrasse Tyson is great. I, I do enjoy him. Uh, it is kind of a problem. No, 
the Rockettes don't show up for some kind of like science announcement. And science announcements are a lot of times boring. <laughs> they just are. They're insanely interesting to the people involved and they can lead to these outrageous discoveries about our world later on. The truth is a lot of science isn't isn't earth shattering in that particular moment. It's something, it's something, it's this little piece of the world that we understand a little bit better, which I find insanely cool, but it doesn't make a good headline. Yeah. Like what television shows, what television shows can you think of that really are like deeply scientific and, and that are mainstream? None, none. Uh, there are ones that are better. Um, I mean, ob the obvious example is Mythbusters. I think you know. I think there a lot of our audience listeners would be shouting "Mythbusters" at their <laughs> at their iPod right now if I didn't mention them. The and while they don't teach the scientific method, obviously, right? Mm -hmm. I uh, at every I've had to explain this to my dad a thousand times because he's a huge MythBusters fan. Uh, is the it's an N of one. <laughs> we have to be careful what conclusions we draw with an N of one on yeah. every episode. Have you ever seen the show called The Doctors? Oh, it's like God. some daytime bullshit show. Like <laughs> I was, I was in the auto body shop, in the in the like lobby yeah. waiting room office area, and they had that going with the sound off, you know. So, <laughs> what my opinions from this are gleaned from no sound. But right. It just looked like so fucking stupid. It looked like it was just. It was kind of like a glorified, I don't know, like. Uh, cosmopolitan or something it was just geared toward middle-aged overweight housewives uh -huh. and you know people with low self-esteem issues because it was all about cosmetics mm -hmm. it was all about like how to make yourself look better it was they were doing things on chin implants mm -hmm. they were talking about like if you if you're a woman and you have like a really low voice how to how to kind of like have some surgery on your throat to make it a little bit higher which is great and if you work hard enough on that you can get the child molestation <laughs> squeaky voice right <laughs> And I was just like, what the, you know, and then and these people and uh, they were ostensibly doctors, right. physicians, and they had, were wearing lab coats, which is, you know, just a bunch of theater. It's just basically mm -hmm. a prop. They were lab coats and scrubs. Exactly. You can get me a lab coat yeah. and, uh, and I, mean, I can go on TV right now. Exactly. And I was just like, what the fuck? This isn't medicine. This isn't medicine. You know, this, well, isn't, I this isn't science. This is just kind of like, I don't know what you would call it, but it's just some sort of like pseudo cosmetic sciencey bullshit crap no and i think you totally <laughs> said it right there with this isn't science <laughs> it just proves that you doctor is not scientist it's a technical field which is informed by science but lots of doctors aren't science what these guys are is it's it's like some fucking Arnold Schwarzenegger, Danny DeVivo, it's like twins. What it is, is they've got Oz. <laughs> and essentially what ABC has done is they've broken off all these weaker and less credible, more horrible versions of Dr. Oz, which is really saying something because I want to kick Oz's ass. And they've got these little components and they all talk about their own little horrible worldview. <laughs> There's like a gynecologist who who essentially tells you horrible things about gynecology. They've got, I love the plastic surgery on guy on there because he's not someone you would let babysit your kids, right? This isn't a dude you're going to invite into your house. You're not going to leave your wife with him on a day-to-day -day basis. But he's the uh, the sleazy plastic surgery guy. The great one is the the ER doc that they found. They found the world's only model slash ER doc. And, uh, yeah, I remember him. You know, maybe I'm a judgmental douche, but it's one of those <laughs> things. I can't imagine he was the most qualified ER doc yeah. around. You know they just, they just pick some guy who was like, He's got a face for television. Oh, right? yeah, absolutely. Right, well, and that's one of the reasons I like Dr. Drew so much is Dr. Drew starts out on the radio. He starts out where 
people are listening to what you're saying and that's the important part yeah. but he really he is, he is a bit of an attention whore I'll oh say, no I'll totally totally but you can you he, but you can be an attention whore and be qualified yeah <laughs> that's totally true too but he does know i mean he's a legitimate doctor he's practices medicine he didn't like leave medicine like absolutely, 20 years ago absolutely for showbiz i mean he still practices it well in a very realistic worldview there isn't any of this nonsense about what isn't your doctor telling you about cam <laughs> story tonight at 11 no but yeah the uh the doctors is horrendous <laughs> <laughs> have you seen they're putting what is it dr phil Susie orman and um the other one it's some other nonsense dr oz dr oz, dr. oz. they've got them all in a perfect trifecta of, <laughs> of absolute bullshit it will be the world's greatest hurricane there's a chance the world will split open and cthulhu will fire out of the brimstone you know take us all down you know what's weird is that a couple years ago they had a american dietetic association conference in denver okay during that time, all our professors were talking about, oh, everyone should go. You know, this is a great opportunity for everyone. All of our nutrition students here, they can go see the, uh, you know, the, the ADA Expo. Gotcha. You know, check out check out the dietitians in action and, you know, and pick up some pamphlets and whatever. And, uh, you know, being the great student I am, I just said, I was like, oh, I'll <laughs> check this out. And so I went down there. I actually volunteered for some hours um, down in Denver. It was like a four-day event. And what, what was weird was the first night was the keynote speaker and it was Susie Orman and I was like what the fuck does she have to do with (laughs) nutrition or dietetics or calories in calories out is a lot like balancing a checkbook (laughs) well when you're essentially your entire shtick is yelling at people and being a relentless cunt over a telephone you can pretty much do that anywhere (laughs) and I, I I actually went to see her and I was like I would love to see how she fucking ties this in to <laughs> dietetics and she she but it was like i go in she was like oh you and i have a lot in common um and she starts out her her spiel it's like oh you know you and i aren't that different after all we actually have a lot in common and we're we're all about people you know and that's how she ties it in and i'm like uh well, isn't everyone kind of about people <laughs> yeah. it's not one of those things but yeah but i was just like i was like at least get someone that has something to do with food or with biology, or with science, or with <laughs> the human body. All right, when you start opening it up like that, because I was about to say, like, and really the the famous dietitians, your cup runneth <laughs> yeah. over. I, I don't know. <laughs> they sidestepped man after man, no name after no name, celebrity I mean, after celebrity. Maybe the security would have been just too hard I mean, for the known dietitians. Well, wouldn't you think that at least Dr. Oz would be a better keynote speaker <laughs> at that? At least... I don't know about better in terms of like speaking ability, but um, at least more. He's a more appropriate relevant. fit. Yeah, you know? no, he's a. Uh, he'd explain the nutrition behind uh, homeopathy. All right, I guess moving on. I don't think I <laughs> yes, <else>. moving on. <laughs> Next, we got a chance to uh, talk with Susie K. Moran. <laughs> yeah, we just did Susie, didn't we? No, we didn't answer. Oh, okay. You so uh, call her Susie. You are you that friendly with her? Sus. <laughs> after uh, after Nancy, we got a chance to talk to uh, Susan Cameron. Sus, do her friends. <laughs> and uh, what's funny was she was trying to walk out of the place. I run over, I kind of grab her by the arm and go, "Hey, talk to us." And uh, 
we're standing there we're two uh two schmucks with microphones covered in polyfilm <laughs> going yeah. hey do you want to talk for a few minutes and uh and she did yeah it was uh, it was, was great it was an awesome interview and i'm glad it was a great interview yeah the thing wasn't even we were at like a mixer right uh-huh and it wasn't supposed to end till 7 30 and it was like 6.45 and everyone started clearing out. Right, yeah. They, they took away the booze. They took away the food. <laughs> Which then, I was so, distraught about. I, I know. <laughs> I, was, I was planning on hitting that buffet table after we were done with the interviews. Meanwhile, I only got a chance to put away four or five fat tires before yeah. we actually got done. But So naturally, when you take that stuff away, everyone's like, well, let's go hit the bars or whatever the hell they do. That is... That is because you were talking, I was just talking to a friend of mine about this. The signals for getting people to do stuff. Like, uh, like you're doing a phone call. Anyway. Because <laughs> we were talking about signals. And it's this girl who uh, was yelling at me. She uh, she says, well, you didn't say you didn't want to do this. And then you just blew me off. And I'm like, uh, I said, I'm not sure if I'm going to make it. I'm not sure if it's a good idea. I'm not sure if I can fit it into my schedule. I think unless you're autistic, that like trifecta of of ambiguity and not wanting to do stuff. I mean, maybe it's a male female thing. Maybe I'm just an ass. Maybe yeah. am I being an ass? Is that? I don't know. I do that all the time. Like, oh, I'll try to make it, or maybe, right, right. Oh, I'll think about it. Maybe this, maybe that. You know, and it's pretty much like I'm almost certainly not going to go. Exactly, exactly. You don't send a text back. <laughs> Zip it, cunt. <laughs> you don't send a text back. <laughs> had enough of your nonsense. Quit inviting me to bullshit. That's not the text you send back. And uh, and I think I think we've just stumbled upon a new one, which is if you want people out of your fucking house, you put away the booze, you put away the food, <laughs> you'll move people along. I, I mean, we're sitting here with a six pack. And God yeah. help me if you put it away, I'll be gone <laughs> like a fucking flash. <laughs> and so everyone started clearing out, and you were like, "We should, you know, like I I need more, you know, I need, yeah. I want to I want to talk to more people, you know. Yeah, we're I gonna get one more person. We got to get out there. Yeah, yeah. I didn't come all this way." Across the street or down the block or wherever you live. I'm not sure. <laughs> I didn't hoof my ass. I'll pour it. I didn't call Amy so she could bring me over here. Exactly. I didn't mooch a ride off a friend for a five-mile drive for just a half-hour conversation. I don't get out of bed for a half-hour conversation. No, but yeah, we, we wanted to get more. Plus, we were sitting there with some cool names. I mean, Susan Morin, is a uh, she's a New York Times contributor. Uh, a radio and show host done a lot of really cool stuff. Uh, what else? So, M- MIT fellow wrote for the economist. MIT fellow, yeah. She's got a lot of cool credits, and uh, so we wanted to get her. There was actually one other person we wanted to get too, but we didn't quite get to it again because they pulled the fucking rug out from underneath yeah, us. Right? Was, we were going to hunt down Cornelia Dean, who is like a New York Times writer, and she's also an author of a, right. a book or two. Maybe we'll get a chance to Skype her in in the future. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, we'll see. And then <laughs> that was see right there. One of those uh, subtle signals that something's not going <laughs> to fucking happen. <laughs> 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 anyway, so we got a chance to talk with Susie, and uh, it was a lot of fun. Susie was really interesting because Susie had some time under her belt as a straight science communicator. Yeah, well, she's actually just a fairly recent convert to the science communication world. She she said that she started out doing mostly business um, journalism and then recently, uh, just a few years ago, transitioned mm-hmm. to science. But I'll let her tell you all about that. Right. We'll, we'll leave something for the interview. But yeah, she was definitely definitely fun to talk to, definitely interesting. Pretty, uh, pretty solid candor, too. Uh, I think she was real direct with questions, a lot of fun to talk to. Yeah, she was real easy to, you know, you didn't have to prod her too much to get her to talk. Right, like, right. 
And seeing as she was at the science communication thing, it was clear she had a real interest in it, and she's got a real aptitude for it, too. Uh, I've gotten a chance to... Uh, I read one thing of hers, I think. I tried to listen to the radio show, <laughs> but... Uh, that would have required me uh, turning off season six of Night Court. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just not going to fucking do that. That's when we find out where, that Bull is a genius. <laughs> Those of you who don't get the reference, Google it. <laughs> Anyways, I don't fucking care. Um, oh, Night Court. Bow, 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 bow. Anyways. But it, it was strange. God, I, I wish was... that wasn't true. <laughs> You host the radio show, How on Earth. Correct. Um, and that's that's not affiliated with like NPR or anything. It's like community based, it's but it's community not radio. So I don't know what the equivalent one would be in Fort Collins. So it's not an NPR affiliate, which KUNC and Greeley mm-hmm. and Colorado Public Radio and Denver would be. We're our own community-powered radio station. Right. Okay. <laughs> and it covers basically the Denver metro area. How do you get funding for something like that? Don't. You don't? (laughs) (laughs) Someone was asking. Actually, the show itself doesn't have separate funding, but we're talking, since it's it's getting broader, we're talking about syndicating it regionally and what that would take and then maybe applying for, you know, Hewitt Foundation or other grants to do it. But to do it, we need to bring in sort of more content from the West Slope, for instance, to make it broader. But now, I mean, the funding to the extent that KGNU, like, you know, the CPR affiliates have biannual fund drives. So there's fund drives for the whole radio station mm-hmm. and what little money there is <laughs> gets <laughs> dispersed throughout gotcha. the programs, but it's not specific to the program itself. Yes. So it's community-based radio, right? Um, and and we're trying to do something kind of grassroots here. You've got a community-based situation over there. We've got KRFC, which is local around here. I was wondering what your experiences are been like promoting science through that kind of grassroots level media that that community push for for science well i guess i have to preface it by say by saying i don't see myself so much as a science communicator Mm -hmm. or the show as being a science advocacy show it is the how on earth science show (laughs) actually we we rephrase it it's the how on earth science and technology show okay so you know it's not it's not pr Mm -hmm. but i think our mission is just to have more issues related to science and environment available to the public, whether right. they're positive, negative, or somewhere in between. Mm-hmm. So it's not, you know, public service announcements no, of by course, any means. Of but but so to that extent, you know, we're trying to get issues that are hot on the spot, like now hydraulic fracking and the natural gas industry and right. why does it matter or what water and climate or water management or I mean it's also astronomy. Actually the co host is an astrophysicist himself. Oh wow. Um, <laughs> and does Shakespearean acting on the side. He's great. That's, <laughs> that's what you get at community. That's radio. yeah, that's, that's <laughs> very high density, I, I got a feeling. Yeah, so he tends to take say the astronomy related interviews and I do it and other people contribute on other <laughs> topics and it, it's really kind of a mishmash based on contributors interest you know broadly how on earth has a, has a pretty wide scope so mm-hmm. we take issues that are national are global and in some way impact the front range or start here 
you know, some particular project, even this is a little off, but say the Eco Arts Festival in mm-hmm. Boulder in Denver, and why should people care about that? So that's a little right. more promotional in a way. Other ones, you know, I'll do call-in shows sometimes, say after the umpteenth fire of the season, <laughs> which supposedly hasn't started yet. <laughs> and it's, c- no, I mean, it's perennial at this point, and it's amazing. And so having different people, maybe two or three people on the radio show, not so much with different views, but different expertise, talking about, you know, as a fire ecologist, what does this mean as a, as a climate modeler? What might this pretend, and does climate have anything to do with it? So, I mean, it's all about science, including neuroscience, brain, you know, brain science, astronomy. Right, so right, the, the whole gamut. It's a mishmash. <laughs> What's the response been to that, like in, like in Denver? I don't know, or in Denver and Boulder, how long? Well, I don't know Denver, how long Boulder, you've been doing it. What's the response been like? You know, it really varies. It's kind of hard to tell, as it is doing, I mean, mostly I do print journalism, and sometimes you put articles out and go, who the hell is looking at this? And other ones, you get gazillion comments, and they're totally off the wall, and you're like, did you really read this, or is this just some default, you know, climate skeptic response or something? Um, so every week before the show starts, we have this BBC play, and then Jim Hightower, the sort of lefty commentary, and then we have comments. So they're some people phone in comments some people email them and generally it's give us more definitely finding um i wouldn't say insatiable but a really healthy appetite for science news sometimes people say oh you're steering a little too much in the policy direction and give us more science others really want more policy and you know outdoors and environment stuff and Mm -hmm less science so just try to balance it and you know we're the personal barometer ourselves is this interesting to me and do i hope this is interesting (laughs) and has some impact at least on the front range so and then like a lot of radio stations you know we'll sometimes peg topics to let's say there's a big water in the west conference coming up in june Mm -hmm. so i figure who's behind that and who would be a scientist and maybe a policy type to talk about that before um just had someone from the National Wildlife Federation and the Bureau of Land Management talking about this boom in natural gas and whether the permitting makes sense and whether, you know, we've already seen this dramatic landscape change in the West, in Colorado in particular, but should something different be done to make it more sane and more um, environmentally sound? So it was a little bit of a playoff between those two voices and it was pegged to a BLM public hearing that was coming up so it's not sort of promoting issues as much as wanting people to know about them so I mean it sounds cliche but it is a democracy <laughs> like we want to inform let you the listeners make decisions <laughs> but also try to get involved in some way so more than say NPR you know it's local and it's right. a little more activist oriented in that I think we see as our mission not to promote one issue or another but to like you should care and here's some information about whether you're going to go to a city council meeting or form your own organization, but it has a little more take this and go out, go forth and mm-hmm. change the world <laughs> ideal to <tour. laughs> yeah. So I'll, I'll probably put this at the beginning, but um, so <laughs> could you give us uh, your name and a little bit of a it's background right on yourself? <laughs> <laughs> I always jump right in. I <laughs> no, that's fine. That's. Uh, Susan Moran. So in this capacity, I'm co-host of the KGNU How on Earth Science Show. And then also for many more years, decades, have been a print journalist 
initially more business, sort of following the money trail, and <laughs> was with Reuters news agency for about eight years in Japan and New York, and then Silicon Valley, and kind of followed the wow. followed the money and entrepreneurial trail when <laughs> it was booming and then busting, including the magazine I was working for, Business 2.0, boomed and bust. It was like Bride Magazine. People would say, it's getting so fat, we can't even fit it in our, <laughs> in, our <laughs> in our mailbox. That's when, what, year 2000, when the internet sort of boomed, and then and then crashed, and then I moved out to Colorado on an environmental journalism fellowship that was based at CU, partly to do, just to learn more about environmental law and environmental science myself, to write more about that, which moved me more, and I was just more passionate about it. So I've been writing a lot about kind of the intersection of business, technology, science, and environment. So whether mm -hmm. it's renewables and issues around public health and wildlife, with that, or oil and gas drilling, I do a lot of stuff around, just finished an article for The Economist. Oh, so mostly I'm writing for The New York Times and The Economist, but forays into Mary Claire, I'm sure you read it all the time, wow, yeah. fashion magazine. <laughs> I have my lifetime subscription already set up. <laughs> you look like it, I can tell. Oh, it's totally <laughs> my It's the earring, that's a giveaway. It's their style. The ads for them are nonstop in there. Yeah. I feel like they're stealing my style. <laughs> so mostly writing about and then with radio, trying to parlay what I'm doing in print to radio and what I'm doing in radio to print and doing podcasting. You know, journalists need to try to wear more hats and just find more ways to reach more people and, and tell the story in a different way and somehow make a living doing it. <laughs> <laughs> really, that seems to scramble for a lot of journalists these days. So would you consider yourself a science journalist? Well, it's interesting you ask. So I guess officially <laughs> I am in that just last year I spent the academic year at MIT on what's yeah. called the Knight Foundation Science Journalism Fellowship. So I'm in the club now. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that sounds like a pretty good endorsement of science journalism. Yeah, so we got, <laughs> yeah. you know, being paid a decent amount of money to take classes at Harvard and MIT and not get graded, which was really nice. And then the have our own time. seminars and do some of our own research. But um, no, I wouldn't say that's been primarily what I've done over the years, I'd say um, science, environment, and business reporter. So as someone who's done, who's worn some different hats as, as far as what kind of journalist you are over the years, what would you say is the difference being a, uh, doing more science journalism as opposed to doing business journalism or environmentalism journalism, which environmentalism, uh, you know, would be Difference a, in terms of my own interest or impact? Or your anything? interest, your impact, the response you tend to get. Um, mm -hmm. I, I've... I would imagine it's a different crowd that you're speaking to as well, or a different type of well, response. Well, and the sources, you know, the experts, very different. I will say, kind of refreshing, and this is one reason why I left sort of straight-up business journalism, is just like with political journalism, it's really hard to get around the spin. <laughs> I mean, every discipline has its jargon. You know, we've got to tell scientists, excuse me, could you dumb that down? Or could yeah, you, could you de jargon like it? Six. But it's not, it's not a deliberate spin, so it's different. I just felt as a business journalist, I was so often on the defensive. I remember one guy said, you're like a bad date <laughs> <laughs> interviewing because you're just ready for them. It's so hard to get beneath the jargon, especially you know companies that are private. They can spin all they want, and the SEC is not sniffing down their back so they can say what they want. It's tough to verify, and there's less discovery. I mean, it's fascinating, actually, following the money trail, both power and corruption, and I was really fascinated by you know, it's basically the Facebooks of the world and the Mark Anderson when he started Netscape with Jim Clark and those who are sort of the serial 
billionaires, but saying, gee, in my heart of hearts, I just want to be a novelist, you know? <laughs> and the Pierre Midiard started eBay and has now got this incredibly effective world philanthropy group. So I've kind of been doing more like that generation of entrepreneurs, sort of like me as a business journalist, <laughs> where we've morphed. And it seems there's has been this sort of movement since the dot-com bust to find something that's more meaningful. So like the so-called social entrepreneurs who are having for-profit businesses, but maybe it's fair trade. And I mean, I know it's kind of a slippery slope. Everyone says it's sustainable and it's fair trade. <laughs> and it can mean nothing. But, you know, looking for, I think, more meaning and more ways to make an impact. And when you're talking to scientists and about science, there's more discovery, both for me personally and I think for the world. And if anything, I want more people like me and beyond to care about how does the world tick? My stepson <laughs> once says, you know, Dad, there's two types of people, those who know how the world works and those who really don't. I realize I really don't, <laughs> but I'd like to learn more. So I think there's, there's more discovery. And I think um, actually I shouldn't downplay business because I think, you know, when Wal Walmart decides to bring CFLs in, that's a huge effect right. on the su supply chain. They can have as much effect, well, if more governments aren't doing much of anything these days, at least not here. So they can have a huge effect in a positive way, but also a negative. So I'm kind of interested in this whole intersection, you know, how science can translate to smart land management or God forbid, you know, hopefully we will get some climate legislation and it'll mean something, but how yeah. science can inform and also should just mm -hmm. make people like my nine-year-old nephew, like, wow, what's a cloud, <laughs> you know? <laughs> how does that work? And there's more of that inquiry and discovery, and I just thought, wow, I've got hopefully many more years of journalism <laughs> yet and want it to be more of a discovery path for me too, right. even though it means, like was talked about a lot today, going into the discomfort zones. Like, I don't really know about that, but <laughs> that's part of the privilege and the challenge of journalism. She's like, well, I can be a student of something I really don't know about, but I wanted to know. Yeah. I was going to ask, what are... What are some of the challenges that you've encountered bridging the gap between like this really technical and complex science um, and scientists and then, you know, trying to trying to communicate that to the to the general public? So where it's more technical and obtuse, you mean how to sort of decode? Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah, how to <laughs> how to get that, you know, kind of dry, maybe even boring sometimes. Um, and My then, then kind of, over is the and then kind of turn it into a story that that people will find compelling. It's really tough. Well, much of what was talked about today is, as a journalist, I try to find, like, let's say now, I'm really interested in what even a year ago would have seemed totally boring and abstract to me is nitrogen. You know, we've thrown the nitrogen cycle out of whack more than carbon, and it actually could have consequences. It's mm -hmm. great, but that's this huge abstract, really hard to penetrate issue. I mean, more is being written now about and broadcast about the problems with fertilizer excess and what's happening to the waterways and public health. But to try to find a specific story, you know, a character within that or some kind of surprising angle so that it's not just this big, impenetrable, <laughs> important but dull theme. And to, so I try to like drill down, drill down, drill down. And sometimes the bigger and the more abstract the issue, I think the tighter the focus needs to be, whether it's radio or, or a story, so people like me you know, and hopefully listeners or readers can go, oh, there's a story there. I'm going to start caring about somebody. Because in fact, a lot of people don't, even science writers, you know, they don't care that much about 
things. It's like, who are the people behind it? So to try to make it um, personable and palatable, and just over and over, I'm having to say, partly because I am ignorant on a lot of the <laughs> issues, could you rephrase that? Uh, you know, I don't want to say dumb it down, but how would you say that to your great aunt? <laughs> yeah. And, I always and say, and how so would you talk to a six-year-old? Explain to yeah, me. Yeah. 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 It's <laughs> the publication. Like, I'm mm-hmm. trying to break into um, Nature Journal and talking to editors there. They don't need to be, you know, you don't talk to them like, you talk to a grandmother, they're coming to me with questions. I'm like, oh, duh, I should have known that. Mm. So it really depends on your <laughs> audience. That was one of her messages is what? Know your audience, know yourself, and know your stuff. Mm-hmm. So it really depends. If I'm doing something for the Denver Post or the New York Times, obviously the science section is more informed, so needs less decoding than the business section, which is going to care more about the economics of uranium than the public health impacts. How do you, so as long as we're on the topic, you were talking about like how you approach, uh, how you approach different audiences, how you approach different topics. I, you bounced off of climate change for a second. I was thinking along the lines of, of what tack do you take when you're talking about something that's, that maybe not scientifically as controversial, but something that's very contentious, things like climate change, things like evolution, things like, I, I have a weird feeling as I learned about the nitrogen cycle, it's going to be very contentious uh, depending on, on business interests and things along those lines. What is the approach you take when you're dealing with, with something that's ultimately very contentious? You know, it sounds kind of cliche, and it doesn't necessarily sell a lot of newspapers. But historically, <laughs> I think journalism, and to its fault, has wanted clash. The more clash there is, the more polarization. You know, TV would say the ratings go up. Right. Um, but I think even the public, for mo- with most venues anyway, are just getting sick of this he said, she said. Mm. So... Yes, tension's great, but kind of an inner tension too, like we haven't figured this out. And obviously there are different views, but so I try to approach it like what's not the middle ground to whitewash either extreme, but what what realistically, you know, there's not necessarily one or the other approach, which is not to say, ooh, we all live together, kumbaya, and we'll just make it work, (laughs) let's make a UN draft, but to try to understand and, and thus appreciate the different perspectives based on what their needs are. So for example, Nitrogen, I mean, it's still pretty abstract, but I'm looking at it. One window is in the Salinas Valley, an agriculture area. It's like the lettuce basket of the world, really, Mm. at least of the U.S. And uh, the state is considering slapping down more strict regulations to have growers, you know, farmers, keep account of their fertilizer runoff. So they're going to be forced to do more than they had before. And they're like, whoa, 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 this is going to cost us a ton. This is going to take down the industry. And environmentalists on the other side are saying, yeah, but we're having to shut down water wells, you know, drinking wells. It's actually affecting drinking water. Mm-hmm. Scientists are p- trying to provide data in the middle. And it's very polarized. I was just at a, what was it, the Central Coast or the Central Valley Water Quality Control Board. And it was very much the standoff. But then someone's like, you know, obviously farmers need to make a living. And we need to protect water rights. Can we agree at least on that? And can we try to understand what are the cost benefit? And there's never, there's not going to be a perfect solution. So I'm trying to look at like what are some of the more nuanced issues that don't even necessarily have an obvious answer or even what may appear on the outside to have good versus bad, <laughs> but it's not that. And it actually makes for much more sort of time-consuming reporting but I think more thoughtful. But it's also, in some cases, a tougher sell because editors want to know, like, you know, where's the controversy? Who's the bad guy? You know, <laughs> who's the culprit? And you don't want to dumb it down or kumbaya it too much, but, mm-hmm. but to actually try to bring in more nuance. So that's, 
my attempt. Mm-hmm. So have you have you ever written a piece or maybe done a radio piece that has caused some backlash from maybe scientists saying that you got it wrong or maybe from the public that didn't agree or didn't want to accept um, maybe your conclusions from that piece? Well, so being KGNU, which is community radio, it's a little on the left and it's based in Boulder and Denver. <laughs> so we don't get calls, but we have a lot of climate science related stuff <laughs> and we don't get the so-called skeptics or the deniers. Really? Other stations would maybe, you know, frankly, I think for better or for worse, they probably just don't even listen to it much. If it were a station in Colorado Springs doing what we were doing, I'm sure there'd be mm-hmm. more backlash. <laughs> I mean, I just had small, I don't know if it's backlash or criticism on this BLM and National Wildlife Federation on natural gas. It's a very polarized issue. I had two people, not because I wanted it a total he said, she said on the show, but I did want to get the two different perspectives and the science. And and um, one of the sides says, I thought you gave the other too much play. And you know, sometimes journalists say, well, if both sides are pissed off, I guess I'm doing a good job. <laughs> I think that's kind of shallow. I don't think that's really true. But, you know, whenever, oh, yeah, well, I did a call-in show on wildfires and kind of raising an ethical and a political and an economic question like should people a bunch of people be living in these intersections you know the so-called wildlife urban interface where there's tons of tax dollars put to put out fires and fires are happening all the time is it is it sort of worth the taxpayers expense to have people scraping up the mountains living in these places that we'd all love to live, but mm-hmm. actually their environmental impact is much greater. That's a very explosive emotional issue, probably in any area where people have suffered from a fire. So it was actually very sensitive as to when we would do the show. We didn't want it so soon after the fire that it's gonna sound like you shouldn't have been living there to begin with. <laughs> and we don't really care that your house burned down. So we wanted to wait a while because it was sensitive. And some people did call like, oh, you shouldn't have even had that show to begin with. But sometimes it's more personal than political well which is such an interesting idea of of information is bad you shouldn't have had the topic you shouldn't have raised the issue which is something i think i think you see in science a lot of times like uh is uh is why are you even broaching that topic we know what the moral high ground is let's go ahead and leave that alone uh i I see it like evolution is always the go-to with that like no no we're okay why are you even working on that and uh, i would imagine cover it as the, a myth. I just mean, I, myth, yeah, I mean something in the sense of in the, there's a lot of the public that would say, well, why are you even working on that? Why, do, why don't you go, go go do something technical, go go make something technology-wise? That's what science should be doing. That science shouldn't be working on this evolution thing because we've already figured it out. Or things along the lines of uh, of the fires where, where you're going to get an emotional reaction. It's a, it's, it's a very interesting thing, I find, that there's, there is such a public emotional reaction to information as opposed mm. to even maybe opinion type things. Like, um, what do you mean? Like, um, okay, well, if you're going to debate the, the nitri- nitrogen topic sort of in, uh, in, you said the Salinas Valley, mm-hmm. right? Or really anywhere. Mm-hmm. If you're going to debate that, okay, there is an economic impact. There is a, a, a environmental impact. Mm-hmm. There are, now you're talking about topics of policy. Do you, have, do you have negative reaction to just putting out information, just saying, hey, here's someone who's going to tell us about why a supermoon isn't really a problem or here's actually the, the bulk of what we do is that right it's not debates mm-hmm. per se or not debates to invite debate right it might be a heated issue that's unfolding that has a potentially a big impact yeah and by extension that may have 
a lot of backlash or emotional charge to it. Yeah. But I wouldn't say it's looking for you know, emotional charge to begin with. Mm-hmm. Actually, most of the stuff on the science show is, I would put it under the discovery category. Mm-hmm. Oh, you know, we've launched another shuttle. It's not even, sometimes it's about should there be funding for it <laughs> and what's the value, but namely it's what's the discovery and why do we want to go down that path and what, you know, you as a scientist, what is this to you and what's your role in it? So, is there anything else you want to say about science communication before we wrap this up? Male, female, transsexuals should not be allowed to play in female sports <laughs> leagues. <laughs> no, I'm good. All right, that's a good note to go out on. This has been the Leaders in Free Thought podcast with Seth and Jeff. As Leaders in Free Thought is a free podcast, all they ask for is a two and two. Take two minutes and leave a comment in iTunes or tell two of your friends.